Good evening to you all, and uh, welcome to another uh, Ralph Miliband lecture in our this series this year on the restructuring of world power. And I'm really delighted to recommend uh, uh, to to welcome you all here this evening. I don't know why I said recommend actually, and <laughs> to to say how pleased I am to have Professor Derek Gregory with me this evening because we knew each other in Cambridge many, many years ago. We don't really want to calculate how many years ago, but it was over two decades ago. And uh, uh, it's an absolute delight for me to have an opportunity to see him again. And uh, I followed his work over the years. And uh, I'm delighted, especially that he'll come and talk on tonight's theme, which is war in the borderlands. Borderlands, and he's going to offer an account of this quite different from some of those you might find at the London School of Economics, particularly at LSE Global Governance, where we've tended to draw quite radical distinctions between old and new wars and patterns of conflict and the significance of those uh, for the theory of war, the nature of interstate warfare, policy, and so on. And I think the account, as I understand it this evening, is going to call into question some of those distinctions, which is all good and as it should be. Uh, Derek Gregory has been highly productive over the years. Uh, he got his degrees, I'll quickly remind you, at several of them at the University of Cambridge. He started his academic career as an assistant lecturer and fellow at Sydney Sussex uh, College in Cambridge, and he stayed until his appointment as Professor of Geography at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, a position he still holds. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. He's been recipient of many prizes and various honorary degrees. He's the author of many books and articles, and I'm just going to mention a few, but all of them explore the intersection between social change, the implications of place, location, and landscape. Among the books I'll mention are Ideology, Science, and Human Geography in 1978, Regional Transformation and Industrial Revolution in 1982, Geographical Imaginations in 1994, The Colonial Present, Afghanistan, Palestine, and Iraq in 2004, and Violent Geographies, Fear, Terror, and Political Violence, published in 2007. So I'm delighted to welcome an old friend. I'm particularly interested in listening to this lecture. I thank you all for braving the terribly cold night and the breakdown in public transportation, I want you to know that all people who are here this evening really want to be here. And so please join with me in giving our speaker a very warm welcome. <coughs> Thank you very much indeed. I'm assuming that you are here because you want to be here not because you can't be anywhere else. Um, it is an immense pleasure to be here, but it's also a great honour to take part in a series which honours somebody with the intellect and integrity uh, of Ralph Miliband. And I want to say something in much more detail about Ralph Miliband's work at the very end. But I begin with a different remark from young Pakistani novelist Kimila Shamsi from her novel Burnt Shadows. She has one of her characters say to an American, but war, countries like yours, they always fight wars, but always somewhere else. The disease always happens somewhere else. It's why you fight more wars than anyone else, 
because you understand war least of all. You need to understand it better. Now, as part of that project of understanding war better, many commentators have described the world that we now inhabit as a world riven by what Dexter Filkins calls the forever war. Tom Englehart puts it like this in his book on the American way of war. It's hard for Americans to grasp that Washington is a war capital, that the United States is a war state, that it garrisons much of the planet, and that the norm for us is to be at war somewhere at any moment. Now, this notion of the forever war has been taken up by commentators on the left and on the right, most perceptively, I suspect, by Andrew Bosevich in his recent book, Washington Rules, in which he talks about the United States project and, in particular, its conviction that it's necessary to maintain a global military presence, configure its armed forces for power projection, and employ them to impose changes abroad. By this means, he continues, Washington has attempted to govern and police what it sees as the American century. And adherence to that strategy has propelled the states into something like a condition approximating perpetual war. And he goes on to comment much more specifically about the global war on terror, the long war. Not even the most hawkish proponent of American global leadership had ever proposed committing the United States to a policy of war without foreseeable end. But what I want to talk about this evening is not simply the forever war, but rather the everywhere war. It's easy to see what I mean, I think, from this simple graphic. You will know that the United States has divided the world up into a series of unified combatant commands. The one which captures most people's attention, of course, is US Central Command, CENTCOM, whose area of operations is, very loosely, the greater Middle East. But this notion of an everywhere war invites us to think much more carefully, not simply about temporality, about history, but also about space and about geography. Now, you may remember during the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, protesters on the streets of American cities holding placards. Placards which said, war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. Now, that remark comes from Ambrose Bierce. He wrote it around about the time of the First World War. But since then, I think it's lost much of its traction. Increasingly, so it seems to me, war is... America's way of teaching other people geography. Now, I want to pursue that notion by playing with a remark by Herfried Munkler from his discussion of new wars. War, he says, has visibly lost its well-defined contours. And I want to take that literally. I'm not simply talking about the conceptual configuration of war, but I'm also talking about the spaces through which it's conducted. And so I want to talk about the way in which our very sense of war has become blurred, moved out of focus. Now, Saskia Sassin argues that cities around the world are becoming key sites for the convergence of what she calls new wars and new terrorism. I understood that if I made frequent references to the polity backlist, then dinner tonight would be a rich reward. 
Now, by multi-sided war, she focuses in particular on the location of cities within this archipelago of violence. Cities as central places in the war zone, like Baghdad, Basra, Kabul, and Kandahar, but also cities as displacements of the space of war. Casablanca, Lahore, London, Madrid, Mumbai. Now, the emphasis on cities is, I think, an important one. We see the same argument in Stephen Graham's book, Cities Under Siege, The New Military Urbanism. But I think it's restrictive. And what I want to ask is, how is the nature of war changed by the spaces through which it's conducted? Let me give you three quick examples. My first example takes us to the borderlands that I imagine many of you were expecting when you came here tonight. What the United States calls vulgarly and imperially AFPAC, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And in particular, the so-called secret war, or more accurately the not-so-secret war, waged across the Durand Line. Now, the Durand Line was established in 1895 to delimit British colonial territories in India along the northwest frontier with Afghanistan. It's a frontier which Afghanistan has no longer acknowledged since the formation of the state of Pakistan, but it's a frontier of particular interest because it bisects so-called Pashtunistan. And you will know that the United States has extended its military operations from Afghanistan across the border through the so-called tribal territories. A war which is waged in part by Joint Special Operations Command, but also, of course, by the Central Intelligence Agency, which controls a fleet of drones which have launched a series of attacks, principally in North and South Waziristan. The campaign was, of course, initiated by President Bush, but it was ramped up spectacularly by Obama. So far, 105 strikes this year, and still counting. Now, the program is directed at killing so-called high-value targets, a program which, as I say, was extended dramatically after the assassination of Benazir Bhutto on the 27th of December 2007, but ramped up considerably by President Obama since then. There's a target list drawn up of individuals who are to be assassinated by drone. Now, there are those, of course, who find this completely acceptable. Kenneth Anderson, a professor of law, says that perfect war is target selection perfected to the point of assassination, because that's how you achieve the polar opposite of cannon fodder. But nonetheless, this war raises a series of legal questions. Do the attacks by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda from Pakistan, launched across the border into Afghanistan, rise to a level that authorises a response of self-defence under the United Nations Charter? Do those responses by the United States themselves rise to the level of armed conflict that triggers the application of the laws of armed conflict? Does the targeting of individuals amount to extrajudicial killing? Under what legal regime and by what means are the rights and protections of civilians in those districts protected? And is it lawful for a civilian agency like the CIA to undertake military operations? Now, any one of those questions could occupy us for the entire evening. But I raise them because they begin to raise a series of urgent questions about the legalisation of the battle space.
and in particular about the presence of civilians. Because all the time that this war is unacknowledged, all the time that the legal regime under which it's conducted remains less than transparent, it means that not only are civilians unprotected, it means that they receive no compensation. So, a report from the Campaign for Innocent Victims in Conflict in April this year urged the United States, in conjunction with the government of Pakistan, to develop a compensation system for civilians, which would have the additional effect of bringing the civilian toll of the strikes to light and clarifying the operational distinction between civilians and combatants. Now, I'll refer to these issues towards the very end because they reappear when we cross back across the border into Afghanistan. But this notion of the legal regime under which war is conducted is not a legal nicety. It's not simply a series of words, a series of formulae. It has real consequences. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that international law is a deus ex machina which can come in and somehow right the wrongs of war. We know that war law has its origins in burning fields, as Foucault reminds us, that law has always been intimately caught up in the conduct of war. But here we have an undeclared war, and so the shadow of war obliterates the application of law. <clears throat> so too with the conduct of this campaign by the CIA. Here's Peter Singer. As of May the 3rd, American unmanned systems had carried out just then 131 known airstrikes into Pakistan. By the old standards, this would be viewed as a war. But why do we not view it as such? Is it because it's being run by the CIA, not the US military? If so, we've ended up, he says, in a very odd situation, because the only true air war that the United States is fighting right now is not one commanded by an Air Force general, but by a former congressman from California. So these are consequences of moment. What we're seeing, of course, is the militarization of the CIA, or more accurately, the continued militarization of the CIA. Mark Mazzetti in the New York Times writes of the transformation of the CIA into a paramilitary organization at the vanguard of America's far-flung wars. Tom Englehart, again, with Nick Terse, talks about a new-style battlefield that the American public knows remarkably little about that bears little relationship to the Afghan war as we imagine it, or as our leadership generally discusses it. We don't even have a language to describe it accurately. So here then, as we move across the borderlands, war becomes blurred. It loses its well-defined contours. The same happens if we turn to a different borderland, the US-Mexico border. Now, many of you will know that the drug war between the cartels began in the 1990s over trafficking routes through the border cities. It spiralled into a war for profits through territorial expansion. And since 2000, the Mexican state has intervened again and again in those wars. On the 11th of December 2006, soon after taking office, President Calderon deployed 6,500 federal troops to his home state. Since then, the scale of military operations has increased, 40,000 troops and at least 30,000 people killed. As the president himself says, it's a war. And yet it's a war where the contours again start to blur. Here's Rory Carroll, 
describing a valley of a dozen villages and towns, once home to 20,000 people, which seems to have detached itself from Mexico, entered a realm beyond any map. There is no state here, no rule of law. In fact, the state is present in the form of the army, he continues, but just as in the valley, security forces in the city are an oxymoron. Their absence breeds insecurity, their presence breeds insecurity. Here in the broiling desert heat, the boundary between warring criminal groups and the state, a comfortable delineation within the drug war, blurs and shimmers. And so, El Universal, in its editorial of June 2010, talks about this being no longer a matter of organised crime, but rather of the loss of the state. The president himself, this has become a challenge to the state, an attempt to replace the state. The cartels are trying to impose a monopoly by force of arms, and are even trying to impose their own laws. Now, On the other side of the border, of course, the military response has an even longer history. Beginning in 1978 and intensifying from the 1990s when the Pentagon established a joint task force to coordinate and provide Department of Defense support to federal law enforcement along the border. This is when we see the active involvement of another of those unified combatant commands, US Northcom, in the militarization of the border. Except, of course, that I'm speaking out of turn. President George W. Bush, no less, insisted on the 15th of May 2006 that the United States is not going to militarize the southern border. Mexico is our neighbor and our friend. He went on in the same speech to say that he was deploying 6,000 National Guard troops, launching the most technologically advanced border security initiative in American history, constructing high-tech fences, employing motion sensors, infrared cameras, and unmanned aerial vehicles. I'm reminded of the number of times George Bush insisted that he had no quarrel with the people of Iraq. I've always wondered what he would have done if he did have a quarrel with the people of Iraq. And you can see that this is a remark which belongs in the same zone of moral vacuity. It's clear that the border is being militarized. As Pratap Chatterjee puts it, the border is reaping some of the technological development that came from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And despite ritual protestations that this is not a militarization of the border, it's quite clear that it's a profound and intensifying militarization of the border. It's even clear to National Geographic, which launches a series entitled Border Wars. It's clear to the Boston Review at war in Texas. And of course, it's clear to Fox News launching a series, War Stories on the Border, the Third Front, starring no other person than Oliver North and his War Stories team. I mean, he should know. Uh, travel to the states bordering this front line to bring you the real story behind the war for the border. So it's not surprising that in the wake of this war in Mexico, the militarization of the US side of the border, that a number of commentators within the United States have picked up on this language of war. So a report from the Center for a New American Security, Crime Wars, Gangs, Cartels, and US National Security. Talking about criminal networks linking cartels and gangs, metastasizing into a new form of widespread networked criminal insurgency. 
No state in the hemisphere is more important to US security than Mexico, the authors conclude, which is fighting for its life against a widespread criminal insurgency. Soon after that report was published, US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton repeated exactly the same language, the consternation of the Mexican press. We face an increasing threat, she declared, from a well-organized network, drug trafficking threat that is in some cases morphing into or making common cause with what we would consider an insurgency in Mexico and in Central America. And so the commander of US NORTHCOM accepts that we've tried to share many of the lessons we've learned in chasing terrorist organizations in Iraq and Afghanistan with their counterparts in Mexico, including, of course, training them at the infamous School for the Americas at Fort Benning. So there, too, war seems to be morphing, not simply metastasizing, but changing into something else. My last example is a different borderland. I remind you, but looking at the age of most of you, perhaps I don't need to remind you, that the internet has its origins in a militarized communication system. The technical core was a packet switching protocol devised for the US Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in 1969, known as ARPANET. Its first outing was less than auspicious. The first message to be transmitted over it on the 29th of August 1969 was to be log in, but the system crashed after only low had been sent. And it turns out that this notion of the system crashing is something which, of course, can be turned to one's advantage. You will know that from July 2008, Georgia was subjected to coordinated barrages of millions of requests, so-called distributed denial of service, that overloaded and shot down its servers. And there's a great deal of detective work that's been done, tracing uh, botnets back to hosting services controlled by uh, the Russian business network, a criminal gang based in St. Petersburg, but also to uh, a Russian hacker forum encouraging would-be cyber militia members to enlist at a private password-protected online forum where they were provided with target lists and detailed instructions. But that, of course, is amatonite compared to Stuxnet. Discovered in July 2010, traced back to November 2008, malware that exploits four unpatched Microsoft Windows vulnerabilities. What it does is modify the code on programmable logic controllers. 10,000 affected hosts have been identified by September 2010. You can see the map there, 60% of them in Iran, which seems to indicate that this was the initial target. Now, those who know about these things geeks in camouflage, I suppose, describes Stuxnet as a precision military-grade cyber missile capable of digitally fingerprinting a computer system to determine whether it's the precise machine the attackware is tasked to destroy. The likely candidates are programmable logic controllers governing centrifuges and turbine control systems. And one of the most perceptive investigators claims that Stuxnet contained two digital warheads, his term, designed to attack Iran's uranium enrichment facility at Natanz and its nuclear reactor at Boucher. It's by no means clear who the authors of the malware are, but the finger of suspicion so far has been pointed uh, unwaveringly at Israel and its cyber warfare unit 8200. And so we're told by Eugène Kaspersky that we now face an era of cyber wars and cyber terrorism. 
And in response to that, the United States has formed a new Unified Combatant Command, U.S. Cyber Command. The U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense explains that in an offense-dominant environment, a fortress mentality will not work. The United States cannot retreat behind a Maginot line of firewalls. And so the Pentagon has formally recognized cyberspace as a new domain of warfare. Active defenses now protect all the dot mill networks. It's also necessary, he continues, to hunt not simply within the military's own networks, but to consider applying that capacity to areas beyond even the dot gov domain which prompts Seymour Hirsch to point out that this raises questions about where the battlefield begins and where it ends. If the military is operating in cyberspace, does this include civilian computers in American homes? So here too we can see that the space through which the war is being conducted radically changes our sense of what war might be. Now in the face of all this blurring, a common response has been to divide and rule, to draw lines, if not in the sand, at least across a conceptual landscape. And so commentators talk about two kinds of new war, ours and theirs. Ours are conducted under the sign of the revolution in military affairs. And by this means, our wars are surgical, sensitive, and scrupulous. The revolution in military affairs relies on two expert languages. The language of science, to advance the research and development process, but also to secure the legitimacy of the result, so that killing is made objective and objectifying, executed in the service of reason and truth. It also trades on the language of what Joel Bacan would call the corporation, to organize the research and development process, but also, crucially, to guarantee the efficiency of the result. Killing is rendered competent and cost-effective, regulated by benchmarks, metrics, and performance indicators. Now, the watchwords of the revolution in military affairs are minimalism, a stripped-down military using automated sensors and robotic weapon systems. A stripped-down military which requires more and more tasks to be passed on to private military contractors. This is a globalizing war. It's fought over long distances, invested in the production of an unstriated space for global capital, what Thomas Friedman calls in his wretched little book, The Flat World predicated, as Sigmund Bauman puts it, with far more perception in his little finger than anything Thomas Friedman could ever manage to tap out on his keyboard, predicated on an ability to descend from nowhere without notice and to vanish again without warning. Caught up too, of course, in the globalizing movement of the arms trade. This is war from a distance. At the heart of it, says James Dodarian, is the technical ability and ethical imperative to threaten violence from a distance with no or minimal casualties. Fought in the same manner as they're represented, virtuous wars promote a vision of bloodless, humanitarian, hygienic wars. And so under the sign of these new wars, war becomes re-enchanted. This is a war marked by the absence of the body. War fought over long distance, 
by UAVs and robotic systems, using the language of surgical strikes. But it's not simply that the body vanishes, it's that the heart restarts, because of course, as these are our wars, these are wars fought for the common good. This is the just war, the good war, fought under the banner of what Noam Chomsky calls a military humanism. And not surprisingly, it has its own visual imaginary. So we see endless shots like these of surgical strikes. And then we see happy American soldiers giving out footballs and relief parcels to children all over the world. The flip side of this, not surprisingly, are their new wars, the new wars described by Mary Caldor and Herfried Munkler. These are not fought by professional armies, but by a volatile mix of parastate and non-state actors. War machines, as Mbembe calls them, mobile, polymorphous, and diffuse. Although these aren't wars between states, they often spill across borders, into those borderlands. They're often transnational in origin, and they're almost always transnational in development. But although they're not local skirmishes, fighters rely not on intelligence from satellites and sensors, unless they've intercepted it, but on ground-based local knowledge. Their weapons aren't long-range or technically sophisticated, but cheap, light, often improvised. And so, for that very reason, they're caught up in a different kind of globalisation. Not simply the legal small arms trade, not simply the illegal small arms trade, but also the circuits of the so-called shadow economy, where the warlord reigns supreme, imposing a predatory, inherently coercive rule, and positioned strategically in transnational circuits of an open war economy, often tra trafficking in illicit so-called conflict commodities. The criminality of these new wars is supposed to be aggravated by their flagrant violation of international humanitarian law. Violence is directed deliberately and disproportionately at civilians. And so not surprisingly, this too has its own visual imaginary. This is war made flesh. This is not virtuous war, but venal war. And at the limit, of course, it's diabolical war. As Romeo Dallaire's memoir of Rwanda puts it, it's war where you shake hands with the devil. And this too produces, as I say, its own visual imaginary. Here, we don't see the operative agency of the global north. We see the passivity and the self-victimization of the global south. Now, those are conventional cartographies. Our wars and their wars. Ours are high-tech, theirs are low-tech. Ours target combatants, theirs target non-combatants. Ours are fought over long distances, theirs over short distances. Ours are caught up in the process of globalisation, theirs advance shadow globalisation. Ours lead to the re-enchantment of war, theirs to the disenchantment of war. Ours launch from the space of reason, science and the law, theirs of course from the space of unreason, tradition and criminality. Now if they seem like caricatures to you, it's because they are. This is a rhetorical mapping. It should be clear that the construction of each of these modes of war depends on the other. Rationalised, regulated war versus informalised or target war. Globalising war versus globalisation-induced war. 
But it should also be clear to you that in practice, each bleeds into the other. That again, the boundaries blur. Remember that the United States invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 involved a high-tech war from the air, but a ground war spearheaded by warlords and militias of the Northern Alliance. And those entanglements continue. This is simply the most egregious example. I take this from a United States Senate report, Warlord Inc., which talks about the US supply chain in Afghanistan. The principal contract is called Host Nation Trucking, worth $2.16 billion, split among eight Afghan, American, and Middle Eastern companies. Again, the privatization of war. But it turns out that security for the US supply chain is principally provided by so-called warlords. So the report describes that learning how to navigate this patchwork of highway warlords by paying the right warlord at the right section of highway is critical. Like a prefix menu, a list provided by one contractor details which escort provider operates on which sections of road between various US forward operating bases in Afghanistan. And of course the tariff depends on what it is you're carrying. Are you carrying fuel? Are you carrying Humvees? Are you carrying food? But what's particularly interesting is the proportion of these payments which find their way directly to the Taliban. Protection payments for safe passage, the majority conclude, are a significant potential source of funding for the Taliban. Within the host nation trucking contractor community, many believe that the highway warlords who provide security in turn make protection payments to insurgents to coordinate safe passage to prevent the convoys being attacked. As Aram Rostin puts it in the nation, in this grotesque carnival, the US military's contractors are forced to pay suspected insurgents to protect American supply routes. In fact, US military officials in Kabul estimate that a minimum of 10% of the Pentagon's logistics contracts, hundreds of millions of dollars, consists of payments to insurgents. So, however powerful those rhetorical mappings between their wars and our wars, the practice on the ground, particularly as we move into those borderlands, turns out to be much more murky. But I now want to turn to a particular example of war being fought at the borders of war. And I want to suggest there's another way of thinking about the spaces through which late modern war is conducted. I want to treat space not as an arena, not as something which we map, but I want to treat space rather as a doing, as a performance. And I want to distinguish three performances. The first I call locating, which is producing the abstract space of the target. The second I call inverting, which is producing the alien space of the enemy other. And the third I call accepting, which is producing the legal, lethal space of the exception. Now, I don't have time to work through these in detail, although at least I hope the acronym that they provide you with is something that you won't forget in a hurry. What I want to do is show how this conception of the spaces through which war is conducted makes space a much more active medium rather than a passive platform. And I want to show you how locating, inverting and accepting are superimposed in the so-called drone wars. 
And I do this because I take Scott Horton's remark very seriously, that we're watching the future of warfare unfold in the skies over the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Now, I should explain that here I'm going to focus very much on Afghanistan rather than on those CIA missions over Pakistan with which I began. But I hope as I proceed, you'll begin to see the connections and the parallels. In order to do this, I want you to go back to the immediate aftermath of 9-11, when one of Britain's foremost military historians, Sir John Kagan, explained the significance of those attacks. <clears throat> Westerners fight face to face in stand-up battle and go on until one side or the other gives in. Orientals, by contrast, shrink from pitched battle, which they often deride as a sort of game, preferring ambush, surprise, treachery and deceit as the best way to overcome an enemy. On September the 11th, 2001, the Oriental tradition returned in an absolutely traditional form. Arabs, appearing suddenly out of empty space like their desert raider ancestors, assaulted the heartlands of Western power in a terrifying surprise raid and did appalling damage. This war belongs within the much larger spectrum of a far older conflict between settled, creative, productive Westerners and predatory, destructive Orientals. I recite that in some detail, partly because I think we sometimes forget the power of ridicule as a legitimate form of critique, but also because on the very day that Kagan was writing his column, the very first armed predator mission was flown over Afghanistan. Now this prompts a crucial question. Where in the world is Afghanistan? There is one answer. But the real answer, of course, is that it's here, at Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. When Robert Kagan visited the US Air Base there, he was told inside that trailer is Iraq, inside the other Afghanistan. Inside those trailers, you leave North America, which falls under Northern Command, and enter the Middle East, the domain of Central Command. So much for the tyranny of geography. Predators and Reapers are launched from bases in Afghanistan, but most missions are flown by operators from one of six ground control stations in the continental United States, and Creech is the centre of operations for Afghanistan. The operators use a Kuband satellite link to fly the drones, but the 7,000-mile distance imposes a delay in control inputs that makes it impossible for them to perform either takeoffs or landings, which are the responsibility of forward-deployed launch and recovery crews who use a line-of-sight data link. The first armed drones were predators, but they've since been uh, overtaken by the deployment of the Reaper, which can fly higher, faster, with a greater range and a heavier weapon load. Now what does this have to do, you might wonder, with the United States' conduct of what it calls counterinsurgency? Well, there's a history to this. If we look at the cultural turn that informs late modern wars conducted by the United States, 
we read the counterinsurgency manual produced by the US Army and Marine Corps, we find again and again and again one single talismanic point of reference. T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Now, there are many reasons why Lawrence is invoked. It's all about understanding the Arab mind, working closely with Arab guerrilla armies. But it's crucially about ensuring that the Arab remains resolutely other. It's about emphasizing the difference, the distance between us and them, rather than recognizing any commonality or mutuality. But even so, what it's all about, so it seems, is a close-in, deeply intimate understanding of local culture. So what then could that possibly have to do with drones like the Predator and the Reaper? Well, we should remember that Colonel T.E. Lawrence was also aircraftsman Ross. And before he resigned his commission and rejoined the Royal Air Force, he was obsessed not simply by the wide open spaces of the desert, but the wide open spaces of the sky. And he wrote that what the Arabs did yesterday, the air forces may do tomorrow, yet more swiftly. That's to say that extraordinary ability to mobilize power in an instant and descend from nowhere without warning. And indeed, it turns out <coughs> that air power has long played a role in colonial counterinsurgency operations. It's the case that aerial counterinsurgency was invented in precisely this region, across the northwest frontier. And as Priya Satya reminds us, air ministry officials privately confessed that the public wasn't ready for the truth that air warfare had made the distinction between civilians and combatants obsolete. Again, I'll return to this. But at the time, even as the RAF was bombing Afghanistan during the Third Afghan War, and then moving on uh, across uh, the northwest frontier, there were voices raised in protest. By driving the inhabitants of the bombarded area from their homes in a state of exasperation, dispersing them among neighboring clans and tribes with hatred in their hearts at what they consider unfair methods of warfare, bring about it the exact political results which it's so important in our own interests to avoid. That's to say, the permanent embitterment and alienation of the frontier tribes. So against that, the new counterinsurgency identifies a new role for air power. Its first priority is intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Very soon after the invasion, Rebecca Grant, writing in the Air Force magazine, explained that Afghanistan is the kind of battle space where striking power quickly outstripped the numbers of targets. So commanders learned to generate targets for air attack in a fluid battle space. And to generate those targets, to produce the target, as they call it, what you needed was a capacity for an aerial platform to remain on station for an extended period, what they call a much longer dwell time. And you can do that, of course, by simply changing the crew on the ground while the predator or the reaper remains on station. It remains on station, beaming back increasingly high-resolution video images. The original multispectral targeting system installed in the predator is being replaced by the so-called Gorgon stare, which will give a much wider field of view. And that will, in turn, be upgraded by the so-called Argus system uh, coming uh, on stream in 2012. Now, those video streams are transmitted not simply to the operators of the drones in Nevada. 
but they're also distributed to the Combined Air Operations Center at what the United States press describe as a secret location at Aludide Air Base in Qatar. They're also beamed to a series of distributed common ground stations where the video streams are analyzed. Um, there are five of these uh, throughout the world making up a system known as a Sentinel and Central Command's uh, analysis unit is based uh, at Langley Air Force Base. So what we have is, a, is an extended network, not simply the drone operators in Nevada, the launch and recovery crews in Afghanistan, and the drone in the air. We also have this live, for the most part, full motion, high resolution video feed being transmitted back to Nevada, but also to Aludide Air Base, to the Combined Air and Space Operations Center there, and also to um, the distributed common ground station at Langley Air Force Base. What this does is radically compress the whole ISR process of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. What it produces is what some commentators call a just-in-time war, in which it now becomes possible to complete the whole targeting cycle in under 10 minutes. But of course, it's not just about images. It's not just about intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, because these are now hunter-killer missions. And so what it's about is what the United States Air Force calls compressing the kill chain, or what Nick Culliver calls bombing at the speed of thought. The idea is to get this whole process to under two minutes, from the time you've identified a possible target to executing the target in under two minutes. Everything moving through that extraordinary extended network. And in that way, because of the speed, but also because of the, the high-resolution video capacity, these new air wars are producing their own version of the rush to the intimate that characterizes counterinsurgency. Most of it is performed now, not simply through video feeds, but through chat rooms. And what this means for so many of those caught up in the network is that they're not hundreds or thousands of miles away from the battlefield. They're 18 inches from it, the distance between eye and screen. This, then, is the kill chain, a dispersed and distributed apparatus that entrains all those who are part of it and constitutes them as particular kinds of subject. Peter Singer, traditional bomber pilots don't see their targets. A remote operator, and everyone else in the chain, sees the target up close. He sees what happens to it during the explosion and the aftermath. You're further away physically, but you see more. And so here is an example of a video stream from a predator firing a Hellfire missile in Afghanistan in 2009. This kind of thing is uh, posted uh, all across YouTube. And it's produced an obvious criticism. Isn't this what one set of critics call convenient killing, a PlayStation mentality? Isn't this just like a video game? And after all, the United States Air Force uses video games of predator missions on its own website as a recruitment device. That's what you see on the right. And the critics often point to Dave Grossman's book on killing, who talks about the role of distance in overcoming people's reluctance to kill. From a distance, I can deny your humanity. From a distance, I cannot hear you scream. And he talks about first-person 
shooter video games as powerful agents through which people are hardwired to accept killing. And among the multiple forms of distance that he talks about, he talks about mechanical distance, the screen that separates the gamer from the game. I think this is a mistake. It's a mistake because video games do not stage the world as a passive spectacle. They're profoundly immersive. And so I take very seriously that claim that these people are but 18 inches from the battlefield. I take very seriously the claim that many of them suffer from PTSD as a result of not simply what they've done, but what they've seen and the inventory of body parts that they're then required to make after the event. But where the video game comparison is important, I think, is here. Video games staged in simulacra of Afghanistan show stylized landscapes prowled by terrorists and insurgents who are easily recognizable. This is from a video game used as part of its pre-deployment training by the United States Army. There's an Afghan civilian. There is an insurgent. But of course, when you look at the feeds from the drone, what you see is a much more complicated inhabited landscape in which distinctions between civilians and combatants become intensely problematic. And this becomes an issue because, of course, there is now a concern about so-called collateral damage right the way through the kill chain, not simply because of international law, but also because of a series of rules of engagement put in place by, in particular, uh, McChrystal and Petraeus. And so what we find is that lawyers now are intimately involved in the kill chain, scrutinizing those video feeds and providing legal advice before any target is engaged. One of them says, we explicitly guarantee extra benefits to civilians. But of course that's to claim too much, because none of these procedures, nor the laws from which they derive, are designed to prevent all civilians from being killed. Because the requirement of discrimination between combatant and civilian is always qualified by the requirement of proportionality. In other words, the military advantage that can be gained from executing a particular target. Nonetheless, because of that detailed scrutiny by analysts at Langley Air Force Base, by commanders and lawyers on the combat operations floor at Aludide Air Base. The Wall Street Journal says that never before in the history of air warfare have we been able to distinguish as well between combatants and civilians as we can with drones. They make for a more moral campaign. Here's Jack Beard. The unanticipated application of virtual military capabilities are creating unprecedented levels of transparency. They're expected to make international law more relevant than ever to armed conflict. Because it's now possible for lawyers to be so intimately involved in the process, scrutinizing the decision to execute before it's taken. But Jack Beard's emphasis on transparency refers to the visibility of military actions, not to the visibility of the battle space. Counterinsurgency, as many of you will know, is often described as war amongst the people. But the problem of counterinsurgency was put very well by the Pentagon's own Defence Science Board. Why is identification and tracking of the enemy so difficult in these circumstances? Well, it's because enemy leaders look like everyone else. 
Enemy combatants look like everyone else. Enemy vehicles look like civilian vehicles. Enemy installations look like civilian installations. Enemy equipment and materials look like civilian equipment and materials. That problem does not go away, even if you can make the battle space fully transparent. It will still be impossible to pull them apart visually, precisely because everyone looks like everyone else. And so the kind of intimacy that's made possible by the video feeds from these drones is a very special kind of intimacy. Here's a predator pilot. I knew people down there. Here's the commander of the squadron flying those planes at Creech. There's no detachment. Those employing the system are very involved at a personal level in combat. Think of the 18 inches. Think of the chat room. Well, he did know people down there. Each day through my cameras as I snooped around and came to recognize the faces and figures of our soldiers and marines. Those employing the system are very involved at a personal level in combat. Well, so they are. You hear the AK-47 going off, the intensity of the voice on the radio calling for help. You're looking at him 18 inches away from him, trying everything in your capability to get that person out of trouble. So it turns out that this time-space compression is profoundly selective. High-resolution imagery is not a technical system at all. It's a techno-cultural system, which makes our space familiar. We recognize our troops. We want to help them in trouble on the ground. Our space is familiar. We recognize them even in their space, which remains obdurately other. And we still can't distinguish combatants from civilians. But where Beard is right about the visibility of military actions rather than of the battle space is, as Rupert Smith puts it, because we fight in every living room in the world as well as on the streets and fields of a conflict zone. The concern here is that this high-resolution video imagery potentially makes the military far more accountable. And so it's not surprising that three strategies have been deployed to mitigate the effect of civilian casualties on public opinion. The first, of course, is to dispute that they're civilians at all, uh, a tactic which the Israeli Defense Forces raised uh, to a, uh, a grotesque art form. Here we are, much more recently, Amitai Etzioni, talking specifically about UAVs. Instead of apologizing each time the wrong individual is targeted or collateral damage is caused, we should stress that the issue would be resolved if the abusive civilians would stop their abusive practices and fight if they must, according to the established rules of war. That's the problem, you see. There's this. You may not be able to distinguish between combatants and civilians, but you don't have to, because somehow you're now able to distinguish between civilians and abusive civilians. The second tactic is to remove human beings from the field of view. These are the air power summaries issued by the United States Air Force, in which you will notice that Reaper operators, predator operators, providing armed overwatch, consistently engage with what? They release rockets over enemy targets, release rockets over enemy targets, release rockets over enemy targets, and on and on and on. What it does is take away the kind of event ontology of contemporary counterinsurgency and replace it with an object ontology. You're not attacking or killing people, it's just a target. And the third strategy is an intensely biopolitical one. Here, 
is Lieutenant General William Caldwell with his prescription for curing Afghanistan. Rather than describing Afghanistan with a language of war and battles, we've come to think of the country as an ailing patient. And the 30,000 additional troops approved by Obama and the increase in offensive operations under Petraeus can be viewed as a late but powerful and much-needed dose of antibiotics, particularly important because the Taliban infection is so virulent. To be sure, similar to a powerful antibiotic, the use of large numbers of combat troops brings with it side effects that can cause discomfort and pain to the body politic of Afghanistan. He evidently feels their pain. The effects range from disruption of civilian day-to-day -day life to regrettably sometimes civilian casualties. But NATO commanders seek to minimize civilian casualties and thus apply combat power with restraint and to the extent possible surgical precision. Now that matter for matters enormously. And you find this notion of, of a kind of oncological warfare repeated again and again and again. It matters because it doesn't simply render any resistance to United States occupation as by definition malignant. It turns counterinsurgency into a form of chemotherapy. And this really is biopolitics. It's killing to make life live. Now I've taken you on a rapid fire journey. I've talked firstly about the multiple spaces through which late modern war is conducted and the way in which that changes our sense or ought to change our sense of what war is. I've talked about the CIA war in Pakistan, I've talked about the wars on both sides of the US-Mexico border, and I've talked about wars in cyberspace. I've then suggested that there have been well-intentioned attempts to tidy up the map. There's a wonderful line in William Boyd's An Ice Cream War, in which a young subaltern, finding himself at war in East Africa for the first time round about the First World War, splashes ashore from a troop ship. They've planned the operation meticulously on board. And when he gets on the shore and finds himself being shot at, he doesn't know where he is. Boyd has him say this, Gabriel thought maps should be banned. They gave the world an order and a reasonableness it didn't possess. And in a sense, that's my concern about these rhetorical mappings. Sometimes we have to acknowledge the messiness of the world and resist the desire to clean it up conceptually. And then thirdly, I've tried to take you to one of the borderlands of late modern war. And I've talked about the multiple ways in which locating, inverting, and accepting are superimposed in those drone wars in Afghanistan. And so I want to leave you with this splendid remark of Ralph Miliband's. Ralph Miliband, as many of you will know, was a fierce opponent of the war in Vietnam. But he was also sharply critical of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And this is what he wrote in 1980. Security by virtue of occupation and the maintenance of power of a puppet regime must be set against a number of contrary considerations. One of these is the fierce hostility which military intervention generates and the nationalist upsurge it produces. Security is here turned into a mockery by the massive unpopularity of the occupier and his puppet government, and it's further degraded by the war of pacification. What kind of security is this? We might ask... What kind of war is this, and when will it end? Thank you.
Well, thank you, Derek, for, I think, a very succinctly argued, often magnificently illustrated, hard-hitting uh, lecture, which it certainly was, with some also wonderful moments of uh, performance. And it's, I think it's very rare, having chaired over 100 Miliband lectures by now, to find this combination of succinctness, illustration, and punchy arguments. And in short, I, I mean, it was an extremely and uh, magnificently illuminating lecture. So let me just start by saying that. And having, as I said, listened to over 100, it's a shame they aren't all as succinct and uh, as finely tuned as that. Um, it raises, of course, questions which I want to ask the audience to generate. I'm going to raise some questions in a moment, but let's start with the audience. And we'll take a few at a time, if that's all right, and, uh, and uh, 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 see where we go initially. Yes, gentleman at the back. Could you say who you are and then your question? Oh, hello, my name is Ian Anderson. Um, yeah, I, I was quite interested um, by the description of the CIA and um, how they'd become kind of para paramilitary in orientation. Um, is it true that they also own companies in countries where they're not necessarily at war um, and they use certain um, degrading techniques on members of the civilian population in those countries. Um, it's just something I'd read about, but I wasn't sure if it's actually correct uh, in, in any case. Uh, and I have a, a slight uh, added question, which is, um, is it possible to get any of these slides that you did um, <laughs> on the internet or anything like that, please? Uh, speak to his publisher later. Um, you, you come back to that later. I mean, is this is publisher's lecture, is it available um, in one place? Uh, I'll come back to I'll that come later. Back to that. Let's just pick up a few more questions. Yes, yes, gentlemen. Yeah, um, I was curious about when you, you brought up the issue of accountability with the US military in relation to the Predator drones and uh, that whole process that was there. And I just wanted to know if you could maybe say something about whether or not responsibility amongst the different actors in that process is diminished by the way it's moved along. Uh, thank you, Derek, for the, for the presentation. I just want to um, uh, push you a bit more on um, the du duality and the kind of banal distinction between our wars and their wars. Um, and what I find interesting about that, if you push it further, is also the question of morality, that you find a lot of um, State Department officials, um, US and UK uh, military experts, kind of almost using their wars as the kind of pretext of why they have to kind of get down and dirty. And I just kind of wanted you, if you can push on how they kind of use uh, that kind of distinction as their own moral vacuous um, and a way of entering into kind of that um, distinction, if that's possible. Thank you. We're learning in economic geography about the ways that new technologies have a kind of a double effect. On the one hand, they take a bunch of tasks and they simplify them and they enable them to be pulled apart over larger spaces. But the, that's, the, that's, that's actually the least interesting part of it. The, the, the more interesting part is the feedbacks they create within the system that enable the system to speed up and create more complex, more diverse tasks 
for itself managed at greater distances. And the end result of it is, I think following your comment, not actually greater transparency of the system, but in many ways greater obscurity. There's not anyone in the world that can tell you what a complex commodity chain really looks like anymore. No one can tell you what information flows look like through the internet. And what you're describing, it seems to me, is a parallel to that, which is nobody can even master the, the, the production chain of war. So that's kind of something like our condition today. And I'm just wondering um, how you see that, because from a, from a geographical standpoint. Pick up one more question. Um, any more hands? I'm slightly concerned that all the questions about warfare are being asked by boys. So I'll come back to you. Uh, but um, is there anyone else who wants to ask other than you? Yes. <laughs> yes. There oh. you back there. We'll come back to you. Don't worry. Uh, I'm Bron Ware. Thank you very much for that um, amazing lecture. I wanted to ask you about the status and the, your predictions for the future of um, the conventional land armies, the actual personnel who make up the armies and their relationship between being a soldier, fighting for the country and the sort of heroic aspects of all that um, and in relation to citizenship as well. Great. Well, we'll that's five questions. We, we'll, we'll have time for another cluster, so I'm going to come back to, to both of you. But could I just put a gloss on that? It, it seems as if this high-tech warfare you describe is generated on the back of the failure of the old state-to-state -state armed structures where ar army units, large armies, faced each other eyeball to eyeball. And the era in which we live, we see that mass army armies moving into territories, uh, whilst they may early on seem to defeat an enemy, don't any longer. Uh, they come with, creates huge costs, huge casualties for armies and uh, civilians alike, and creates enormous legitimacy problems back home. So if you shift to the scientization of war, which you are partly uh, describing, you can seemingly make it more precise. You can depersonalize it in principle. You can brag about accuracy and higher moral standards, you win your legitimacy argument, your technical argument, and your potentially your cost argument. And yet what you're also describing is something that is close to insanity, because this new escape, as it were, from that warfare into scientized conceptions of warfare, which the drone is the most clearest symbol, is on the ground still utterly ineffective. The US is the greatest military power in, in world history. It couldn't win the war in Iraq. It cannot win in Afghanistan. It is going to lose. The only issue is the terms of exit. Petraeus is ratcheting up of the warfare uh, uh, under Obama's orders is about the terms of political negotiation for an exit. So my question to you follows a little bit on this is <clears throat> where, does this, where is this headed to, as it were? An increasingly expensive military hardware with budgets that are ratcheted up over and over again, where $750 billion spent by the US on military hardware every year and growing half of the military expenditure of the world. And yet, it doesn't produce, in the end, effectiveness on the ground. The cost-benefit analysis, by any objective measure, is one of failure. OK. Is this on? It is. This is on, OK. Um, thank you very much for all those questions. I'll try and deal with them as clearly as I can. Um, 
the CIA is certainly no stranger to front companies around the world. And although I talked about concerns raised by commentators in the United States about its militarization, it seems to me that these are commentators with remarkably short memories. Um, the difference, I suppose, is that in the past, very often, the CIA was using um, uh, proxies, that it was arming others to do the fighting for them. I'm thinking of the Bay of Pigs, for example. I'm thinking of uh, huge swaths of Central America. Um, and, of course, Afghanistan during the Soviet occupation. Um, what's new about the, the development we're seeing now, of course, is, is, is that CIA operatives are themselves actively engaged in the business of, of, of uh, fighting. And they're certainly no stranger to front companies around the world. I mean, we know a great deal about the front companies that they used for the process of extraordinary rendition, for example. Um, so it wouldn't be very difficult to start joining the dots and pushing them on into the grim future that you outlined. But I have, I have no information about it. Um, secondly, the question about accountability and responsibility is, 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 of course, an important one. I think the difference, though, is this, that during the Second World War, if we look at the equivalent of the kill chain, it was remarkably dispersed, and decisions moved through it remarkably slowly. So much of the process of producing targets, and of course these were fixed targets, so you could plan days, weeks, even months in advance, was nonetheless divided between a whole series of different units, and no one person, with the exception of a very, very... Uh, small number, principally, of course, uh, uh, Bomber Harris, ever saw the whole chain. And that notion of, of, of what one commentator calls the bureaucratization of homicide is extraordinarily important. Because if you disperse responsibility, then ultimately, as, as you imply, no one, no one is accountable. What's different about this, I think, is, 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 is this process of compression brings so many people into the same time as well as the same space. And that, I think, does make, does make a, a difference. And certainly the, 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 um, uh, the question of, of PTSD is, I think, um, a real one, and it derives directly from that question of, of, of responsibility. Uh, thirdly, the question about um, it's only because they fight dirty that we have to get down and, and do the same. Um, well, of course, that's exactly the rhetoric. Um, when I talked about locating, inverting, and accepting, that lines up very neatly with the claim that our wars are surgical because we can locate these targets so precisely and take them out in a, in, in a precision strike. Um, uh, sensitive, well, because there's a culture there to understand. It's just that it's the opposite of ours. I mean, these are not people like us, so what we will not do is contemplate all the things we might have in common. Rather, what we've constantly got to do is distance ourselves from the enemy other as radically other. And the notion that, that we're scrupulous is all about producing this legal, lethal space of the exception, doing everything um, fully in accordance with the, with the laws of war, which produce these, these, these dreadful results. Now, there, there are two things to say about, about that logic, and mercifully other people have said them. Um, Al Benvenisti, in a, in a really quite brilliant essay, says, isn't it interesting that the same powerful states that wanted to set up international tribunals to deal with, for example, the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, the conflict uh, in, in, in Rwanda, and to, as it were, um, uh, bring a kind of judicial gaze to bear on those conflicts, and, and in a sense to try to, 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 to regulate, to constrain those kinds of conflicts, are precisely the same states who are calling for a loosening of, of legal restraint when we're dealing with, with these so-called non-international trans-border conflicts as they define them. 
Um, and that rhetoric is, is, is an immensely powerful, but, but plainly um, Jane has faced one. The second person is, is, is J. Marshall Beer, who in a brilliant series of essays points out that all the time that the, that the laws of war are going to be defined by those who hold the technological balance of, of, of power, then of course the weapons of the weak are always um, disenfranchised. They are always disallowed. So, so that in fact um, you end up with this, this kind of double advantage that not only do you have the technical means of, of warfare that they don't, but you're denying them any kind of legitimacy. And of course what this assumes is, is, that, is that somehow there's a moral difference between killing someone with a smart bomb and killing someone with a machete. Yeah. Um, the, the, third, the, the, the fourth point about, about the kind of feedbacks within the system and the, the kind of complexification of it all is I think exactly right. Um, at the moment the, the United States Air Force is, is, is concerned that they are, it appeared on one of the slides, um, the former head of ISR in the United States Air Force said that there's this danger of drowning in data and swimming in sensors. That they're picking up so many data streams and of course their technical capacity to pick up those data streams is, is, is increasing spectacularly. Uh, most of it they can't process so it's archived and so what they have is what they call a kind of forensic analysis of the data bank and also the kind of real-time monitoring. And what they want to move towards is a situation, they say, where there's no distinction between the two, where, where it becomes phaseless. And in order to do that, what they're doing is, is exploring a series of, of automated techniques, the same kind of things that US television networks use for, for tagging events in an NFL game to have an instant replay. So that more and more of this will become automated and of course it will provide them with less and less of, 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 of kind of on the ground um, intelligence. And the last point about, about um, land armies um, and, and, and the future, I mean I, I, I think several things about that. I, th I think that <clears throat> in, the, in the fuller version of that part of the, the presentation tonight, um, I join the Air Force with the CIA and I talk much more about what's happening on the ground. Uh, one of the extraordinary things you see is, is that if you look at the air war fought by the United States in Afghanistan, we know a great deal about the kill chain. We know a great deal about those spaces through which the kill chain is mobilized. You know, the press have crawled all over Creech Air Force Base. They've been to that undisclosed location in Qatar to look at how the thing is, is, is controlled. They've even been to the distributed ground, a common ground system in Langley. So we know a great deal about this whole thing, but the space of the target we know virtually nothing about because we don't have the kind of vigorous press coverage you have across the border in Pakistan. Where there, it's exactly the opposite. We know nothing about the kill chain. We know nothing about the protocols that the CIA follows, but we know everything about the people that are being, being taken out. Right. Um, but, but what I do, I do want to say... Um, several quick things about that. The, the first is, is, is that you're quite right to ask about land armies because there, there's, a, there's a crucial sense in which this is uh, an elaborate smokescreen. It's, 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 it's a remarkably cheap one compared to a, a conventional fighter bomber, but it's an elaborate smokescreen because what it distracts us from is, is the fact that the conflict on the ground, fought literally by boots on the ground, is as bloody and awful and miserable and wretched as it's always been. And you can read any of the accounts by, by um, troops returning from Afghanistan, troops returning from Iraq. And the idea that this is you know, a bloodless war, 
that it's being fought by people who have, I mean, there's, 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 there's one, oh, I can't now remember the title of it, yes I can, it's called Kaboom, um, where they actually nicknamed one of their, um, one of their weapons um, cultural intelligence. Um, that's how far the counterinsurgency doctrine has, has moved uh, onto the ground, and on and on. So, so you're quite right to remind us that war on, on the ground is, is, is as hideous as ever. I, and I certainly don't believe that these drones are the, the future of warfare, certainly not in their present form. Firstly, because they can only survive in an uncontested airspace. They're remarkably easy to shoot down. Um, and the airspace over Afghanistan, over Iraq, was not contested. But the second, of course, is, is, is that technology leaks. And precisely because this is a comparatively low-cost technology, um, it's not difficult to imagine a future when it's not simply the United States and Israel and Britain that has these, these drones. Um, remember that, that uh, Britain flies its drones from Creech as well, alongside the, the United States. But something like 40 countries are at present developing, developing drone technology. We have time for another uh, quick round. So you two, who've been waiting patiently. No, these two here. Yes. Um, I don't know if this would be a repetition or just deviation from the topic, but you base your lectures, now that this one I've attended, and your writings on the syndrome, I call it a biological Connotation, syndrome of us and the other. But I'm sure you've come across when you give out the details about the war within the other, that you've come across the syndrome of us versus us, where there's a dilemma within the countries like, for example, from Pakistan, where the enemy comes from within rather than the enemy from without. So I would like your thoughts on on that. Okay. Um, where are we? Anyone else? Yes. Gentleman in the back. Let's try and s take three or four more questions. My name is uh, Leonard van Ettering from Royal Holloway. Uh, thank you very much for the interesting presentation to start with. Um, and my question relates to your book and your work in general, The Colonial Present. Uh, it has received a lot of praise in academic circles. And I wonder uh, how much impact it had on policymakers, and more in general, how we as academics can gain more influence uh, in policymaking circles. Thank you. Yes. Great. Hi. Uh, thanks for your talk. With reference to. Um, the cyber warfare that you were talking about. Um, well, it seemed that there was kind of a, distinct, a distinction between the warfare that was going on between Georgia and Russia and warfare that's fought with a computer screen in front of you and uh, operating drones in Afghanistan. But kind of more towards the former model, how does that stand up to kind of a possibly resistance to that with something with uh, WikiLeaks and that type of, um, if you could just kind of speak to how that affects this uh, paradigm. Anybody else? Great. I'm trying to squeeze out the five final questions. We've got. This is the fourth. And then you can wrap up, yeah? Okay. Hi. Good evening. My name is Lino Fishman. Thank you very much, Derek. Um, 
I was wondering how the so-called hegemony of the United States military discourse, paradigm, whatever you want to call it, um, can other places like Afghanistan and the, its inhabitants, but places like Saudi Arabia and its inhabitants get away scot-free. Can you comment on that, please? Thank you very much. Any final thoughts? I, I want to ask you, just want to press you more a little bit on the, on the you know, scientization of warfare, which is partly your, what you're describing. And it's claims to legitimacy on the one hand through science and effectiveness on the other because it is scientific. But clearly what we see here is the increasing abstraction of warfare from the ground in some senses. And the result of that is, an in, is, a, is, a, is a decrease in discrimination. It, it suffers from a crisis of information. However sophisticated the techniques, however the extraordinary vision of the satellite, however closeness to the screen, it can't, in the end, the system discriminate easily between friend and foe. And that is it, essentially its core question. So scientization of war can go on so long as it can claim, on the one hand, legitimacy, enhanced legitimacy, and the other hand, enhanced effectiveness. But you seem to be describing a system that whilst it might nominally, in the eyes of some, have enhanced legitimacy, its claim to increased effectiveness is hard to see. Discuss, as it were. All right, let's give you the last five minutes. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, okay. Um, the first question about um, essentially the homogenization of the kind of imaginative geographies through which this war is conducted. I mean, I, I put it like that because that's how Said describes um, the world in Orientalism. And Orientalism trails right through the discussion that I've presented tonight. Um, and Edward talked about this fundamental distinction between our space, which is familiar where we're at home, and their space where, where we're not. Um, and it, too, is a rhetorical device. So I don't, for a minute, um, uh, minimize the, the immense as it were, epistemic violence, which is done by, by as it were, homogenizing Afghanistan or homogenizing uh, Pakistan, um, and for that matter, accepting those kind of territorial lines on, on, on the map. The question about uh, policy is an interesting one, because for my new book, War Cultures, I've spent a considerable amount of time hanging out with soldiers. Um, and for the book after that, which is, which is um, about bombing, a kind of genealogy of bombing. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in, in trying to work out how on earth people think that it's still acceptable to do it. Um, I've been spending a lot of time hanging out with, with um, lawyers as well as, as uh, people in the Air Force. The interesting thing is this. Um, I don't know about policy, um, but you must know that there's a, a lively controversy in North America about the way in which the United States military has uh, enlisted uh, people in the social sciences, principally anthropology, um, the kind of weaponization of culture to support its counterinsurgency campaign. And the response to that, uh, a very principled one by the uh, network of concerned anthropologists, is to withdraw all discussion um, and to simply boycott um, talking with the military, which I think is, uh, is understandable but immensely mistaken. And the reason I say that is, is that one of the great conceits of, of liberal society is that there's, a, there's this 
um, wall between uh, the political and the military. Now, it's a conceit because without it, of course, we would live in morbid dread, but it's a conceit because we know it's simply untrue. Uh, the military does not hesitate to meddle in the political, and God knows politicians are constantly meddling uh, in the military. My take on this is, 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 is that I've tried to have these discussions with, with politicians in Canada, and it's, it's simply pointless um, because their minds are made up. The interesting thing is that when you talk to soldiers, their minds are not made up. They know far more about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan than any politician in Ottawa, including the Minister of Defence. Um, and it seems to me that precisely because of our conceit, if you talk to the military, you stand a chance of getting at the politicians. And the point that I've, that I've tried to make through this engagement is, is that, you know, the whole logic of your system of cultural intelligence is precisely about identifying all the ways in which people in Iraq, people in Afghanistan are not like us. So you end up with this bizarre notion in which, you know, you think that, that um, Afghans are really weird people because if you smack down their door in the middle of the night without warning, rush into the house, eight of you, um, with, with uh, uh, machine guns, drag the men of the house out, hood them, put them in plastic cuffs, drive them off, um, and not allow them to return for three months, six months, three years. Apparently the Afghans get pissed off. I mean, what weird people they are. And it seems to me that, that any kind of cultural intelligence um, that is actually going to offer any prospect for a decent, better future is also, of course, you know, we're all different. That's why the world is so glorious and wonderful. But there are also really important ways in which we are very similar. And if we don't understand the area of, of commonality and mutuality and respect, then the whole thing is impossible. And you say that to soldiers and they get it, and you say it to politicians and they look at you as though you're the spawn of the devil. Um, the question about resistance, um, and 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 uh, yeah, I mean, my my point really is 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 that is is that we should never think of these things as purely technical systems. So my th the reason that I went through that elaborate discussion of of high resolution video imagery from from the drones is that it's too easy to get caught. I mean, exactly, this is science. Um, Whereas, of course, it's not. It's, it's, it, 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 it's science as cultural practice. It's technology as a technocultural system. And so once you see it like that, it's hardly surprising that, that, um, that it's possible both to tap into those networks to, to, to... I mean, it's astonishing how easy, apparently, it is to tap into those networks and extract those tranche of documents and then to release them on the web. And that's no surprise because once you layer um, culture into, into technology, you begin to get a much more um, responsive, much more, much more open system. The same, the same exactly is true with, with, with David's point about, about science. It, you know, it, it, no matter what the scientists say, and I've been to various defense science meetings, which are the most bizarre experiences known, known to humankind. They're all engineers. Um, by and large, you've discovered that the only way in which you're really going to get hold of culture is to model it. It's like going back to the positivist social science of the 60s with all you know, its, its powerful benefits. Um, but again, if you talk to, the, talk to soldiers on the ground, they get it. But what I find most interesting about, about most of the writing on the revolution and military affairs is that it is as bloodless as the war they claim to be describing. Um, and there's remarkably little attempt made by those who talk about this new kind of warfare to explore what happens when it's put into practice on the ground. One of the best reports of the invasion of Iraq was by a reporter from Wired magazine. He said, you know, I went into to Iraq. 
I didn't really want to talk about the revolution in military affairs. What I discovered was all these geeks cobbling stuff together with all this commercial off-the-shelf equipment. And of course, none of it could talk to anything else. It was all, I mean, to go back to, uh, to, to your point, Michael, just a complete mess. It was, it was wired, but they were wired in different places to different, different systems. They couldn't, they couldn't talk to one another. But more than that, it's, it's, it's the fact that I keep coming back to this point that, that ultimately, all the time that wars are being fought on the ground in this kind of way, um, then we need, I think, to, to think very, very carefully indeed about, about just how bloody that is for soldiers as well as for civilians. Um, you know, Judith Butler talks about grievable lives. Um, and I think it's important to understand that all these lives are grievable. Um, and I think that in much of the commentary on, on, on war, there's a tendency to say that we'll grieve these lives and not those. And there's this sharp divide, which I think, again, goes back to this discussion about mutuality and what we have in common. And if we don't understand what it is that makes all of those lives grievable, um, then the future is as black as it could possibly be. Well, Except here, of course, in London, it's white. So good luck. Well, thank you again. I mean, it was really a remarkable lecture, I think, in, in the many ways I said before already. Succinct, illustrated, tough, uh, and delivers a, quite a punch. And uh, thank you very much. I mean, it was an exemplary lecture, and I, I think all of us are here glad we ventured through the night to be here this evening. And uh, when is your book coming out? Oh, you didn't answer the question of the availability of this lecture. Let's just come back to that briefly. I will do my best to put these slides um, up on the web. I will contact David, and then uh, you should be able to get access to all of it. Fine. Okay. Well, you heard it here. Thanks again. Thank you very much.